How are we doing 11 o'clock? Or is it 1045? It's 11 o'clock. We change it all the time. As Dan said, my name's Tim, and I'll be leading us through part two of our message on Mark chapter 14 in the Last Supper. You can turn there if you want. We'll read it in a minute. If you remember, Dan uh, talked about really all the dynamics happening around the Lord's table and the actual meal. Uh, so it's Judas's betrayal. It's, uh, there's a conversation in there of, uh, in the room of Peter uh, and the disciples denying that no, surely it wouldn't be me, uh, Lord, that would, would betray you and all of that. But today we're gonna not look at all the elements around the table, we're actually gonna enter the room and take a seat at the table. Dan introduced the concept of the Mark and Sandwich uh, in verses 17 through 31. It's 15 verses, five, five, and five, with the two sets of five on the outside, again, funneling our attention into the center. We need to note that. And every gospel writer has an audience, okay? Everyone has an audience and therefore they have specific intentions when they write these stories to draw their readers to the most helpful part of the story for them and for all who would read it in the future. For Mark, I'll just give this away at the beginning because it's gonna be the theme of our message. The most helpful thing for the audience of Mark to know is that their king is a lamb. I love the way Mark writes. Just for fun, really quickly, uh, let's look back at Mark 14, 12 to 16. These are the five verses that set up the Mark and Sandwich. The word Pesach, or Passover lamb, is used four times in five verses. It makes you think it matters for what's ahead, right? But then you don't see it show up for 15 verses. The entire Mark and Sandwich, the point Mark's trying to make, the word Pesach isn't in there. Dan and I were talking last week just about how this kind of makes you feel as a reader. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as you're reading through, you're expecting to see the lamb, it's kind of like that story of Isaac when Abraham's leading him up the mountain. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Isaac, as they get closer to the, the top of the mountain, he's getting a little confused. And he says to his father, Father, I see we have the wood, the coals. What does he say next? Where's the lamb? It's almost as if Mark, in just like this brilliant literary structure, is begging his readers to ask the same question. Where's the lamb? And I think it fits because the disciples aren't asking it when they should be. There is a lamb, praise God. There is a lamb in the story, and we'll see him. I hope we see him in verses 22 through 26. So in part two here today, <clears throat> we're gonna take a, a seat at the table. We're gonna enter the room. And like I said, we're gonna look at all that's happening within. What's really been on my heart as I've studied this passage is all the expectations that everyone is bringing to the table. There's three different categories of expectations. Uh, don't mean to sound too seminary. Maybe I think I'm smart and I like to use big words, but here they are. Uh, sociocultural expectations, uh, how we view society and how society and culture affect us. Historical expectations, uh, which is basically the background of the people that they bring to the table. We all have a story. We all have a background and 
It shapes our expectations of what this means for our lives. And then the eschatological expectations or uh, people say end times, how things are gonna end. I like to say our future hope. And I'd like to argue that the room is pregnant with expectation. It's bursting at the seams with expectation. In fact, in the Last Supper account in Luke 22, he actually says a fight breaks out in the room and someone pulls out two swords. I've had to break up some sibling fights at the table. I've got three little kids, but this is on a whole nother level. Well, sometimes. And this is just a window into the drama of the Last Supper, specifically at the table. Now, I just wanna say a quick thing about expectations to kind of prime our hearts as we uh, get ready to approach the table at the end. My wife and I are part of the marriage team here at Crossroads, and we get the opportunity to walk with people, uh, young couples through the premarital material. If you uh, married people in the room can remember back to your engagement days, uh, there is something very beautiful and inevitably frustrating about expectations. When Shayla and I sit down with couples, we tell them you're gonna have expectations and most of them are gonna be unrealistic. They're gonna come from your culture, telling you that marriage is gonna fulfill you, it's gonna satisfy you. It tell, they, culture tells us who a great husband ought to, ought to be and what they ought to look like and a wife. And then you're gonna bring in your story, your background, your baggage, your brokenness. And you're gonna bring in the examples you've been given from your parents and it's gonna set some expectations based on what they modeled for you. And you're gonna have hopes for the future, a home, children, and joy and a happy ever after. I'm not saying that's not God's intent. Marriage is beautiful. But we know what happens next, right? The wedding ceremony is over, the honeymoon ends, and you move into the house. And all of a sudden, the husband wants the end, the coffee, the end table on the right side of the couch, and you want it on the left. And as a young, new bride, you look at your spouse and you say, I didn't realize I married an interior designer. Who does this guy think he is? And then the husband goes into the kitchen, and the, the trash is magically in the pantry, but he grew up in Dutchland, and there's only one place for the trash to go. It goes under the sink, right? I can't remember if it's right or left. I didn't grow up here, but he looks at that trash and goes, maybe I made a mistake. Who is this person? Not to mention the expectations we bring about sexual intimacy, finances. Oh, and losing your notes. Bear with me. All of this shapes and molds what we think is actually gonna happen in that context. Sometimes we don't see some of these underlying expectations until they're confronted. We'll see this morning how the Lord's table confronts the disciples' underlying expectations socially, historically, in regards to their future hope. And my hope is that we can consider as a community how the Lord's table could become a space for some healthy confrontation for us as well. Our king is a lamb. So what does that have to say about our lifestyles as we leave this place? The title of our series is Kingdom Come. And I think we need to be careful when we say those words. Because if our king isn't a lamb, then it's all up to us to earn our seat at the table. 
And if our king isn't a lamb, then all we're gonna get is the sword. And if our king isn't a lamb, then there may not be a kingdom at all. So let's make sure that we know our king. Please stand if you're able for the reading. Mark 14, 22 to 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. You can take a seat. Enter the room. In John's account of the Last Supper, he says, in John 13, one through three, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So remember, Dan said, it's amazing how much Jesus knows throughout this whole story. I believe Jesus knew Judas's plan And scholars believe this is why the location of the Passover meal was so mysterious until nightfall. You'll remember from last week that Jesus sent just two of his disciples to go into the city and instructed them to look for a man carrying a jar of water. He'd show them the room. It's believed that this part of the the city was an unfamiliar place for the disciples and it was likely the wealthier part of the city. This is definitely a wealthier person's home that the disciples have never been to before and it may even be a Roman host. Evidence of this is the table. This table, we've got an illustration we can pull up, is called a triclinium. It has two arms or tables uh, off the sides and one along the back at the center. The middle was left open for servers to go in and out and attend to the guests. The guest of honor either sat at the center part of the table or somewhere on the side and everyone else kind of filed in according to rank. Think back to Jesus' teaching. The setting here makes me think of when Jesus says, when you come into someone else's house for, for a feast or a meal, don't take, the, don't take the seat of honor or even next to the person of honor, but take a lowly place and hope that maybe the guest of honor will call you closer, friend, come, come take a closer seat. Around the outside are cushions and the cushions were for reclining. In Roman, Roman culture, reclining was a sign of freedom and power. Slaves would always have their feet on the ground so they could be ready to serve the masters. In Jewish culture, uh, there, was, uh, there was a kind of a culture or a past of reclining. What they do now when they take the Passovers, they'll recline because it's kind of a sign of their freedom from Egypt as free people. There's some ancient Near East texts that also tell us that this type of reclining, this triclinium, might go beyond Roman culture and it could be something that even David did, uh, reclining as as a sign of power and freedom. The main point here is that the room and the table are basically Roman, but the meal and the occasion are Jewish. Two cultures are colliding. I think this is just another example of how Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing 
He has all the information. There's pomp and circumstance to the evening, and it's on purpose. The audience of the Gospel of Mark would have been familiar with this scene. They're Gentile converts living in Rome. It's worth remembering that the Holy Spirit is working through Mark, writing this gospel almost as anti-Roman propaganda to counter the Roman message of Caesar as the son of God and the Pax Romana or great Roman peace as the hope for the world. He says in the very opening verses, uh, or the opening verse of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. He's starting with the point. The great hope of the world is the kingdom of God and its king, the true son of God, isn't Caesar, it's Jesus. So in some ways, when I read this, I think the Last Supper is, it almost brings everything full circle, doesn't it? We're right back to this setting, the place it all began. So what about expectations? I mentioned earlier that Luke tells us that a fight breaks out in the room. The fight is over greatness. Greatness is an overarching topic of the evening, and both Roman and Jewish cultures have expectations about what it takes to be great. For Romans, greatness comes from earning man's favor. It comes from power, wealth, achievement, and who you know and are associated with, which includes especially table fellowship. For Jewish people, it's all about earning God's favor. This is earned through obeying the law and being associated with people who are clean, very much a part of table fellowship. What I notice in this setting, and maybe you see it too, is that everything that Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples throughout this entire uh, sermon series that we've been on is now being confronted at the table. Have you ever thought of communion like this? Does it confront your way of life? Jesus knows that at the table in this environment, he's gonna see how much his disciples have learned about him and about his kingdom. And as the night goes on, it's becoming clear that the disciples are missing it. After that fight breaks out, Jesus says to them in Matthew 20, 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. He's bursting that Roman expectation in the room. Going back to John's gospel and his account and this idea of clean and unclean, at the beginning of the Last Supper, Peter has that whole interaction with Jesus, right, where he comes into the room and Jesus takes the position of a servant and he says he's gonna wash the disciples' feet. Peter says, no way, Lord, you will not do that. Jesus says, if I don't do this, you'll have no part with me. Jesus says then, or Peter says, then wash my head and my hands as well. He's thinking it's a ceremonial thing, but Jesus just speaks to him plainly. I love this part. He just says, I just gotta wash your feet, bud. <laughs> right? He's trying to show Peter there's a better way of doing life, a way of living that's better than just keeping the law. It's about a life not bound by rules and rituals, but rather bound by a deep love for God that comes from the heart. And it leads us to live, not like kings with a sword, but like lambs, humbly. Jesus wants the law written on their hearts. 
He alludes to this internal work in Mark 7 when he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. He's bursting their Jewish expectations now. The disciples' expectations need to be changed from the inside out, and I think it's worth reflecting for us this morning and considering what we think earns us a seat at the table. Is it our greatness? Is it our cleanliness? How did we get there? How do we become clean? And what makes us great in the eyes of the Lord? Our culture's expectations aren't that much different than Rome's. And the church, unfortunately, can sometimes make it their job to label who's clean and who's unclean. Our culture defines greatness as wealth, status, appearance, uh, and achievements and who you're associated with, your colleagues, business partners, people who invite you over and what their job is and how much money they make and who they know. And in the church, cleanliness looks maybe like piety, having a position of leadership, having a, a lot of knowledge and a profound word for everyone, going to the right worship events, and conferences, or even just being able to call a specific church my church. Our fear usually sounds a lot like the disciples when they said, surely not me, and I would never. And in our pride, in our pride, we, we can't see ourselves accurately. Therein lies the greatest enemy of the church. It's not out there somewhere in politics or different organizations or certain people groups. It's in each and every one of our hearts. And it's pride. Pride will always dictate our culture's expectations on greatness unless our king is a lamb. If your king and my king is a lamb, then he calls us to a life of humility where we're able to be honest about our uncleanliness and we're willing to receive forgiveness from him, to confess, repent, come back to God and allow his upside-down kingdom to shape our expectations about all these other things. We submit and surrender ourselves to his authority in our lives and how we view the world at the table. So we need to stop letting the world around us stir up our pride and instead remember the lamb. The next thing worth looking at is that historical piece, historical expectations. Remember uh, that remembering, remember that remembering is something that God has called his people to do for years, thousands of years. And the Passover meal was another annual event that helped Israel do this. It was far more involved than our Western Eucharist or communion. By the time Jesus, of Jesus, the meal could take up to four hours. And the instructions for the Passover actually go all the way back to Exodus 12. So I can't put the whole thing up here, but if you wanna maybe at the, the dinner table or the lunch table today, read Exodus 12, one through 13 with your family. Probably be fun. I'll just read six through eight and 13. It says this. Take care of them until them being the Passover lamb until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. 
That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Skip down to 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. From this time on in Israel's history, the Passover was celebrated with this in mind. Each year, families would select a lamb without defect, bring it home, and care for it like a beloved pet. And then a few days later, they'd bring it to the temple or to the altar, slit its throat, and the priests would collect the blood and pour it on the altar. In Jesus' day, the historian Josephus states that over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at the temple in Jerusalem. The blood, as the priests washed the altar off, ran down through the city all the way to the Kidron Valley. This act served as a reminder for the people that the blood of the lamb was what saved them. The family would eat the lamb as part of the Passover meal. And the next element was the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs were eaten to remind the people of the bitterness and slavery. And then the unleavened bread, or bread without yeast. Yeast is commonly referred to in scripture as a representation of sin. We see in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Over the years, dating back before the time of Jesus, this meal developed. And it's all good developments. It's just telling his, Israel's story more and more specifically to help them to remember. And what we know it as now is called the Seder. Here's an illustration of what that would look like today. And there are, there's a lot more to it. There's passages that are read. There's stories that are told. There's questions the kids are prompted to ask during the meal. With the exception of the boiled egg, which I'll just confess, I, I'm not sure exactly when that came into play because uh, it represents the time in Israel's history when Israel couldn't bring a sacrifice uh, when they were in exile. They didn't have a place to bring the sacrifice. So uh, I don't know if it's rotten or just hard-boiled, but it's a... Uh, it's that kind of memory. Uh, that's a joke. The six elements we see in uh, the collective gospel accounts would be the things you see up there minus the egg and then the unleavened bread. Uh, so the lamb shank would have been an actual lamb. And we see this in Mark. He says, go prepare for me a place where I can take, where I can eat the Pesach, the Passover lamb. That's what the disciples are going out to get, and they're going out to get all the other things to prepare for this meal. Probably took them all day. So uh, the bitter herbs and the bitter vegetables symbolize the bitterness of slavery. The karpas, something like parsley dipped in salt water, uh, represented the tears of oppression under Pharaoh. It also was used to describe that story in Israel's history of Joseph when his coat of many colors is ripped off of his body. Uh, and his, his brothers sell him into slavery. They dip his coat in the blood of animals and bring it back to his father to say he was, he was uh, devoured by, by a wild animal. That act and Joseph, of Joseph's, Joseph's story actually is the launching pad that drives God's people into Egypt and eventually into slavery. Starts out beautiful, new king comes, things fall apart for Israel, and they enter into slavery. Uh, and then we see the kerosene, uh, the clay-like mixture of mashed apples, nuts, and spices to remind the people of the bricks that they had to build under slavery in Egypt. So God has 
has always been telling his people to remember their story. It's very important to him because their story helped them remember their identity as a redeemed people brought out of Egypt, beloved of God. When God led Israel into the desert and up to Mount Sinai, he didn't just give Moses commandments, he gave wedding vows. I will be your God and you will be my people. Love the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. The thing that you can't fault, that we can't fault Israel for in all these years up to today is that they are a people who know who they are. They remembered that they were God's people in covenant with him. But the part of the meal that might tell their story best is the fruit of the vine. So uh, let's go there. Take a look at verses 23 and 24 in our passage today. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. During the Seder, there's four cups that are drank throughout the night. Each cup represents a different aspect of God's redemption. The four actually come from Exodus 6, 6 through 7. I know I'm reading a lot of verses, but try to stay with me. Uh, Exodus 6, 6 and 7 says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. The four cups of the Seder represent this. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take and marry you. Covenant commitment. I know we know this, but little review, it's always good to hear. If we put our hope in Jesus Christ, this is our story too. Jesus is holding up the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, you've been brought out of slavery to sin. I'm delivering you from darkness into light. I'm redeeming you through my blood and I've made a covenant commitment to you forever. Is this your story? If it is, we can't forget it. You can usually tell when you've forgotten your story, or at least I can. I start to turn back to Rome, and I start to turn back to ceremonial washing. Here's what I mean. I start asking the world and the people around me who I am. I become desperate for man's praise at work, my wife's respect, and affirmation at home. I start to care more about money and appearance and my social status. And if that story works for me, the narrative in my head is that I've got this, I'm my own king, I can handle everything, I'm the man. It becomes a story of a self-made man who doesn't need God. But sometimes the enemy tells me I'm an imposter. That if anyone knew who I really was, I'd be rejected and unlovable. Can you relate? What are the lies you believe when you've forgotten who you are in Christ? The enemy loves to tell us all sorts of things, guys, about ourselves and about others and about the future. He'll tell it to us in the quiet of our mind where no one can, no one can argue with him. We have to remember our story 
so that we can live into it and overcome these attacks by the enemy. And the table's the perfect place. For, most, for many of us in the room, that will mean that we need to repent of an overinflated ego, thinking we've got this and we don't need God. For others, it will mean we need to repent for the ways we've agreed with Satan's lies that we're too filthy to be made clean. In either case, all of us need to surrender to the truth. The truth is that we all desperately need the love and mercy of God. So to just kind of wrap this, this, this thought up about the historical expectations in the room, if our king is the lamb, then our story is not about anything good or bad that we've done anymore. It's all about Jesus and what he's done. When we surrender our lives to a lamb, we can now take our eyes off of ourselves and boast in him. You feel that freedom to do that. Sometimes we get in our own heads, right? We live in this space where we're constantly counting. Have I been good enough? Have I been good enough this week? Was I good enough in that conversation or that meeting or that whatever? All right, so... Let's move into some of the future hope expectations. The disciples knew who they were. We love that. But I don't think they knew their Messiah very well or well enough. The Passover was never intended to just be a reminder of the past. It was an archetype of a greater future redemption. The disciples had two expectations about their future redemption that Jesus was confronting. First, that the Messiah would come and destroy all their enemies. And second, that the Lord's table in the future was only for Israel. We could be here all morning reading prophecies about what the Messiah was and what he was going to do, who he was gonna be, but suffice to say, the disciples were most interested in the passages about their enemies being destroyed and their freedom and glory being restored. Psalm 118 is actually perfect proof of this. Have you ever looked at, in our passage, Mark 14, verse 26, that verse that says, and they sung a hymn, and they went to the Mount of Olives, and you go, well, that's nice, <laughs> and just kind of move on? It's actually super significant. So the Psalms were Israel's hymn book, and Psalms 113 to 118 were called the Hallel. The Hallel was a series of psalms that they sang throughout the night. And it's likely that Psalm 118 was the last psalm of the night. Guess what it's about? Not about, well, I'll just say this. It's about victory. Here's a portion of Psalm 118, verses 15 and 17. I'll just read a little bit here to get, give you the feel. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. Let's go. Everybody get your sword. I'm sure we can gather what's drawing the disciples' attention out of that psalm. And that's how they enter into the garden. But they miss something. Again, I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. I probably would have too with their background in history and culture. They missed verse 22. 
I'm sure you've never heard this passage before in your life, positive. It goes like this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's gonna be rejected. It has selective hearing. They didn't wanna hear that. Their expectations about wrath and judgment prevented them from being able to see a bigger picture. Their Messiah had come, but his expectations were very different than theirs. As Christians, we do believe in this aspect of God, uh, about his wrath. I mean, if you just read Revelation 1, it depicts Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. And the Passover was a judgment day. That night in Egypt, God himself poured out his wrath on the firstborn of Egypt. The only thing that saved the firstborn of Israel was the blood. And every Passover after that, a ton of blood was shed, as we mentioned earlier, from lambs, reminding Israel that their God was a God of justice. And all sin needed to be paid for, but they were saved by the blood. Our God will repay every evil. He collects our tears in bottles. For those who suffer, he says, I see you. He will do something about the wrongs done on this earth. If you've ever suffered pain, trauma, abuse, or injustice in your life, you need to know, and maybe you can relate to an oppressed people like Israel. Your God will, will address every sin. His wrath does come for everything that's happened to you. If you're asking, does anyone see me? God, do you see me? God, are you gonna do anything about this? He has an answer, and he will. But God is also gracious and merciful. And I know we love to cling to this part. I think we do well, especially my generations and the ones coming up, to spend a little more time considering the wrath side of God. But we need to see him accurately for who he is in his fullness and he is a God of mercy. The people who should have known this best, though, was Israel. They would sacrifice so many sin offerings to atone for their sins so the lamb would get, the sacrifice would get what they deserved. They acknowledged it throughout their history in these, rich, in these ceremonies, in these, uh, these sacrifices. But now they'd forgotten that God was gracious. They forgot this part of his character. They couldn't see the lamb. So let's jump ahead just a minute uh, in Mark. I wanna, uh, want us to take a look at um, verse, or chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus is talking to God the Father. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? Jesus stopped drinking wine. He said, I won't drink fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom after he had finished the third cup. The fourth cup of the Seder that represents consummation, Jesus is saving. He's saving it for the wedding supper of the lamb, the messianic banquet on the new heavens and the new earth. So what cup is he drinking right now? There's a fifth cup. This fifth cup is mentioned in the Old and the New Testament. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16 says this. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Revelation 14, 9 and 10 says, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on, on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. God has a wrath. Jesus is in the garden praying, asking his father if it's possible for him to not have to drink it. But he's willing to, and he trusts the plan that he and his father put into place long ago to save those who believe by faith. In Christ, we have a God who is completely just, who leaves no sin unpunished, but is full of mercy and grace. He made a way for sinners like you and me to have the opportunity to receive grace. He did it by dying for us so that if, if they believe in him, we believe in him, we'll have a place too at the Messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Thank you. I hope our hearts are grateful when we hear that. The disciples had forgotten about this gracious part of God's heart. And as a result, their expectations for the future were off base. How well do you know Jesus? How much time do you spend with him in prayer and in the word? Does he get your leftover time, your leftover talent, your leftover ambition, your leftover energy? I heard a pastor say one time, if your faith is weak, your relationship with the Lord is weak, it's owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. Do we believe that if we just get with God in his word and spend time in prayer, that our lives will change from the inside out? While they're eating, Jesus took the matzah, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. The breaking of the bread symbolizes more than just Jesus' death. It represents his sinless body without yeast. The early church knew this well. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in our passage, Jesus is revealing himself as that suffering servant from uh, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. He's right in front of them. And he's right in front of us when we take communion. But Israel wanted the wrong king all the time. Think back to when they entered the promised land. God had just given them wedding vows. He had just made a covenant commitment with them. He just said, you're my people, I'm your God. They enter the land, they see all these nations in the promised land, and they see their kings, and they say, whoa, we need that. We want that too. They didn't want the right king, but God gave it to them. He gave them Saul, tall, handsome, carrying a sword. And now Jesus is sitting in front of the disciples, and again, they don't want him as their king. But here's the thing, and I said it in the beginning, if Jesus had come as the king the disciples wanted, they would have all gotten the sword. Again, in Isaiah 53, 6, 
It acknowledges that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, turning to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Romans 3.23 says, and we grow up hearing this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Messiah's greatest enemy wasn't simply Moab, uh, the proverbial perpetual enemies of Israel, and it wasn't simply Rome. It was sin, and sin levels the playing field. All the conversations about greatness go out the window. We all need the lamb. Jesus had spent three years just crazy, revealing himself to the disciples so that they would know the heart of the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He longed for Israel to be what God always intended them to be, a people blessed in order to be a blessing. And when he says, he has this on his mind, Jesus, when he says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. His vision, his, Jesus's future hope is that every tribe and tongue and nation would be sitting at the table. So we talked about the fifth cup. Let's look at the fourth cup, the cup of consummation. Jesus does not drink this. Instead, he's saving it for the banquet. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures of the heart of God comes from Isaiah 25, speaking about this day. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And this refrain is echoed in Revelation 21 at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So, communion. We're gonna take communion in just a little while. This is our Passover meal. It's a time to remember our story of redemption, but it's also a time to look forward to sharing the fourth cup with Jesus at the Messianic banquet. Rod always says that this is uh, a rehearsal. It points to the Messianic banquet when Christ will return. And this is the part for me, guys, that's the most confronting. That makes me think the most about how I'm living my life. It forces me to think about that day and how it impacts right now. On that day, there will be no more pain, no more death, mourning, or tears. That means I'm not gonna hurt people anymore with my pride, my insecurities. And it means I'm not gonna be hurt by others. It means I'm not gonna be posturing and you're not gonna be posturing at the table at the Messianic banquet. We're gonna be so satisfied in Jesus Christ that we're not trying to prove anything to anyone. Imagine a meeting this week at work that looked like that. Imagine a conversation, an argument, whatever you wanna call it. I heard somebody this week call it a scuffle with your spouse. Like, People still use that word. Imagine if we brought this reality into every moment of everyday life. We'd look a whole lot different. We'd look a lot like Adam and Eve in the garden when God said, this is good. The table's gonna be filled with people that I don't know. It's gonna be filled with people that maybe even I considered my enemies. Can you be okay with that? 
We live in a culture that makes a lot of enemies. The scene's gonna be Revelation 7, 9, and 10, and I just wanna read this, and maybe you need to close your eyes, but I think if we fall in love with this vision, like God wants us to, it's gonna motivate and inspire us to live differently today. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All eyes are on Jesus. We gotta live like that, guys. He's our story. This forces me to think about fellowship Do I long for this fellowship? Do I long for this to be a reality here and now? We live in the already and the not yet. Am I striving for this type of community? If I'm not, I might not know my king well enough. Or something else is ruling my life. At the table, you and I are challenged to think if our way of doing life is really fully surrendered to Jesus' ideal for fellowship, If it is, then it should radically impact what we do when we leave this place and what we do here together, every time we get together. Talking to pastors from a number of different churches in the Midwest, friends and mentors of mine, I've heard the area of church life that people feel the most let down, the most burnt out, the most disinterested, or just struggling with is community life. The part of church that we struggle with the most is the practical day-to-day life-on-life relationships with others. We got the programs, the events, the conferences all down, but the day-to-day is a real challenge for us. And I think it has a lot to do with our expectations. We put so much pressure on ourselves as individuals when we come into community and we put so much pressure and expectations on others. As individuals, we think we need to have it all together when we're in community or have something wise to say all the time or to be all things to all people, the savior complex. We strive for piety, but we also strive for fame. We feel like we need to posture for leadership positions or be a part of all the relevant gatherings, right? We exhaust ourselves to earn the praise of others. We try to show ourselves as clean, and undefiled, but we aren't. And when we strive for these things as if they're attainable, we betray Jesus Christ and his example. And we rob our fellowship of the chance to be encouraged that they're not alone, that we're all actually in desperate need of God's mercy. Furthermore, We put pressure on others. We project our insecurities on our spouse, our house church, our leaders, our brothers and sisters in Christ that we interact with every single day. We expect them to have it all together, to always have a profound thing to say, to never have any struggles, to never make those mistakes or say that wrong thing. We manufacture in our minds the ideal spouse, the ideal pastor, the ideal house church or Bible study, and the ideal crossroads, right? And it all works against the cause. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this. 
Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. If you know your king well enough today, then we might do community with a little more grace and a little less pride. We might try more often to bring the vision of the Messianic banquet into everyday life, everyday interactions. It might check our hearts before we have conversations. But we all tend to forget, and that's why we need the table. Jesus said to Peter, that guy who had a hot temper and denied him three times, he said, on this rock I will build my church. And if you read through Acts and the epistles, they struggled with the table a lot too. So we're not alone in our struggle to do this well, but the table is where Jesus chose to stage his final hours of his life. And he, it's where he calls us to represent him in the world until he returns. Whether it's over a meal, a football game, March Madness, a phone call, a social media post, this week we get the chance to let the kingdom break through. So I just wanna close with this. All the expectations that we've discussed this morning. Our expectations about what greatness is, our expectations about where our identity comes from, and our expectations about this community. They all get confronted by Jesus and his death. He didn't come with a sword, he took the sword. I want us to experience that type of confrontation when we consider the table. Maybe we can lay a few things down, some expectations, some things that culture has fed us, some things that Satan would love to pull from our story to tell us about who we are, and some expectations we put on here, who we ought to be and what we ought to do, what the perfect church looks like. Let's not be so prideful. Jesus builds his church, and he's invited everyone, even the people that we may not think should be there, into it. Let that confront you at the table this morning.